Once again, assured by the Word of God that those who confess their sins and turn to Christ are forgiven of all of their sins and at peace with Him. That's our comfort as we come now to sit before His Word. Let's do that then, turning to the Word of God that He may teach us. Our text this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 22. The last chapter in 1 Kings. First Kings 22, and we'll read verses 1 through 40. If you remember from a few chapters back, Syria and Israel had been at war. That was when Ben-Hadad was forgiven by Ahab when he ought not to have been forgiven. Chapter 22, verse 1 picks up on that history. It says, For three years Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year Jehoshaphat the king of Judah came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not, another, is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah the son of Canaanah made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied, and prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? 
And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah the son of Canaan came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said to him, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty-two captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the, the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about... About sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 4, stanzas 1 and 2.
Those are beautiful words at the end of verse 2. We'll come back to those in a moment. The text, as I mentioned earlier, is from 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 through 40. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, some of you, if you've been paying attention for the last year or so, six months or so, might have noticed that this is the same text that I preached on at classes. It was my intention to eventually come back to this text after hearing the words from the brothers there and modify it and turn it into a sermon I can preach also here, especially since now we're at the final chapter of the first book of Kings. Well, as it happened, I do believe this is a very fitting text for us to reflect on, also in light of the events of this past week. Most of you have heard our our sister churches in Holland have made the decision to open up the offices of minister, elder, and deacon to to women, and that in spite of what we all know, clear instructions in God's word not to do so. And that's what makes verse 4 or verse 2 of Psalm 4 such a fitting such a fitting verse for us to reflect on, and I hope that's the spirit also in which we can read this text, not to let our wrath breed sin, we, we rightly feel anger at such a decision, but instead to be still, to meditate in silence, to place in the Lord our soul reliance, and to bring Him our right offerings, and to do His will. The, the reality is that it's a temptation for all of us, to twist God's word into our own preferences, to ignore what it says or to make it say what we want it to say. And that's also exactly what we see happening here with with Ahab. All of us can do that, and it carries very serious consequences when we do that. It's a very complex chapter to to reflect on. The book of Kings is very honest about that. We've seen that already a few times. The the book of Kings is honest about human characters. It doesn't flatten them out, but it shows how complex and contradictory they can very often be. So you have a good king, Jehoshaphat, working together with an evil man, an ungodly king, Ahab. Jehoshaphat is given a a positive evaluation in in the book of, of Chronicles. And yet Ahab, of course, is the worst of the kings to date. And then you have Ahab himself, who only a couple chapters back, only one chapter back, had had shown some signs of repentance. And we saw that a few weeks ago. And yet now he seems to be right back to his old self. And, And you also see within Ahab, even though he hates God's word, and he hates the faithful prophet Micaiah, you notice he still wants him to speak the truth. You have these contradictory realities within, within human beings. You have also Zedekiah, a, a prophet of Yahweh, with a name that means Yahweh is righteous, and he is the son of Canaan, and, and that means his father was a Canaanite. That's what that word comes from. So there's a hint at some family history there. His father perhaps was even a, a convert to Yahweh. Maybe he was even one of the 7,000 who didn't bow their knee to Baal, and yet his son Zedekiah is a liar and a hypocrite. And you have God himself, God who is truth, sending a lying spirit to Ahab. What do we do with that. So it's a very complex, difficult chapter, and the lessons you learn from a chapter like this are also complex. 
they're, they're complex, and yet they are also serious and profound and worth giving our attention to them. Verses 1 through 4 give us the history. They tell us how this story began. Jehoshaphat came to visit King Ahab. And as I mentioned, Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. Verse 43 tells us the same. He walked in all the ways of his father Asa. Asa also being a righteous king. And he did not turn aside from doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. And yet here you find him, oddly enough, out of place, standing next to the ungodly king Ahab. Now, Kings doesn't tell us, but Chronicles does tell us that he had also made a marriage alliance with King Ahab. And Chronicles explicitly says that it was a stupid thing for him to do. It's not that good men won't have to work with evil men in this world. Of course, they will. That's, that's part of life. But they should not ever be making alliances that force them to stand together when they ought not to stand together and lead them to violate their own integrity. And that's what Chronicles tells us Jehoshaphat did here. So anyway, Jehoshaphat is there in one of their regular diplomatic meetings, and Ahab suddenly says to his servants, Hey, do you remember that that place Ramoth-Gilead, that it now belongs to us after the war that we just fought with Syria, and we've not done anything to take it out of the hands of, of the king of Aram. That's another word for Syria. Ramoth-Gilead, then, it was one of those northernmost cities in in Israel. And Ahab was right. It did belong to him. You can see that earlier in in chapter 20 when there's that war with Syria and Ben-Hadad lost the war. And he promised he would give back all the cities that his father had taken from, from Ahab's father. And so apparently he hadn't kept that promise. And now Ahab suddenly remembers it. Now, it's interesting, just as, as an aside, probably the reason why in the last three years he hadn't done anything about it was because ever since that last war had ended, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, and Ahab ended up forming an alliance against a much greater nation, Assyria. It's interesting, archaeologists have even found, found the records of, of this war uh, written by the king of Assyria, and they mention a resistance from a coalition of kings, including Ben-Hadad and Ahab, the Israelite, it says. So they had formed this, this temporary treaty, but now that war's over, and Ahab turns around and starts looking at Syria, saying, hey, you were supposed to give us those cities, and you never did. And Jehoshaphat agrees, it's good, we should go into battle against Syria. Now, in Second Chronicles, if you read the same story from that perspective, you, you see a prophet uh, rebuking Jehoshaphat for agreeing to help Ahab. But even though it was wrong for him to help, you notice still, even in this, t- in this text also, that Jehoshaphat and Ahab are very, very different men. They have, they have very different spiritual instincts. So Ahab makes the decision to go, and as far as he's concerned, that's that. Let's go. Let's get our armor and go to war. Jehoshaphat, you notice, he hesitates and says, wait, we haven't yet asked God about this. That's who Jehoshaphat was. It was part of the way he thought. You can see the, the difference between these two men. And the way that Ahab responds, it's almost as if he, he thinks, oh, right, this is, this is the king of Judah I'm working with. They, they still go after Yahweh, and, and they still want his opinion. So Ahab does go and consult God, sort of. He calls together a group of 400 prophets who worked for him, and were probably paid by him. And the king asks them in verse 6, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, 
or shall I refrain? And of course, these prophets of Ahab, they know the drill. Their job is to convince everyone that God agrees with Ahab's plan. And so they say, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, if you're reading carefully, you'll notice in your Bibles that Lord is in lower caps. So the ESV, when it's the word Yahweh, the ESV puts it in, in uh, all case letters. When it's, when it's another generic name for God, it's just the word Lord in lowercase. And so that's what they're using here, a generic name for God. And, and that's, that's significant because this is a generic group of prophets. After all, don't forget, this is, this is Ahab. So they would have been a mixture of prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah, prophets of Molech, and a few prophets of Yahweh. And so it's really not all that different from our own day. You, you see politicians saying things like, God bless America, or God bless Canada, and, and they don't really care who God is or which God you're talking about. They use a generic name so that everyone is happy. That's what these prophets are also doing. And you can see that Ahab and Jehoshaphat, again, are on such totally different wavelengths. Jehoshaphat had asked for a prophet, specifically of Yahweh, assuming that Ahab would understand. He's the king of Israel, after all. He ought to still know who Yahweh is. But Ahab could care less about Yahweh. And, and so maybe it's, it's for that reason, or maybe it all just seemed too easy. But after all these prophets had spoken, Jehoshaphat still wasn't quite convinced by this group of prophets. And so he asked Ahab, and notice the, the capitalization, is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh that we may inquire of him? Well, the king probably didn't like it that Jehoshaphat wasn't satisfied with his group of 400 prophets. And his response is, is, is truly incredible. He says in verse 8, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imla. And so it, it's so obvious just by Ahab's response, he knew that his group of prophets was a sham, a lie. He knew that none of them were legitimate prophets because the only legitimate prophet was not welcome in his courts. But Jehoshaphat insisted, and so Ahab sent his messengers off to get him. And in the meantime, we're treated to a little show in verses 10 through 12. Whoever recorded this story must have been there in that, as part of the crowd out front and watching all, all of the craziness there unfold. And the group of prophets, they suddenly realize what's going on. They realize, oh, Jehoshaphat wants a prophet of, of Yahweh. Well, we can arrange for that. We have one right here. And so Zedekiah now steps forward. His name, just like Micaiah, includes the name Yahweh at the end, making it clear that he is the resident prophet of Yahweh. So they've got one for every god. So he steps forward, and, and now that he knows what Jehoshaphat is looking for, he, he bends some, some iron into the shape of, of bullhorns, and he says, Thus says Yahweh, notice the, the capitalization, Thus says Yahweh, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. 
So here's your, your resident prophet of Yahweh. And he might have even been quoting from, from Scripture, from Deuteronomy 33, uh, verse 17. That verse was part of Moses' blessing over the tribes. And he says this about Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, which is Ahab's tribe. He says, As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. That was Moses' own words. So here we have Zedekiah, and he's a professional. He knows his field, and he even has a verse from the Bible to back it up. The, the reality is, when you want God to agree with you, you can always, always find a verse. You can always twist God's word to make it say what you want it to say. And maybe this explains why Jehoshaphat was ultimately unconvinced by, by, unconvinced by Micaiah's warning, even though Micaiah was recognized as a prophet of God. Hindsight is, is twenty twenty, as we say, and, and both prophets, Zedekiah and Micaiah, were claiming to be prophets of God, and after all, Zedekiah also had a verse from the Bible. Well, meanwhile, all the other prophets, now that they realize what's going on, they all join in, even these prophets of Baal and the other prophets, they all join in and they say, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper for Yahweh, notice the capitalization, Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Well, meanwhile, when, while all that, that is going on, verse 13 now takes us away from that scene to where this messenger comes to go and get Micaiah. And the messenger says to him, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. The author of, of Kings surely wanted us to to pause and think about that command for a moment. What an amazing thing it is to tell that, to say that to a prophet of God, as if Micaiah actually had a choice. As if Micaiah could just say whatever he wanted. It leaves you wondering, what did they really think a prophet of God was supposed to do? It's such a tragically low and pathetic view of prophets that you find in, in, in this messenger's suggestion. And so Micaiah responds immediately, As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. Prophets don't have a choice, and neither, of course, do ministers today. We're not in control of the message. We, we don't get to change the message according to our own whims or interests. Even if we wanted to, those who are entrusted with God's word, whether it's prophets then or pastors today, are bound to God's word and have to give an account to God for what they say. If they refuse to preach God's word faithfully as God intended it, or if they twist it to support their own preferences or allegiances, those prophets or pastors are in very grave danger. It's an important lesson for every generation. We're all vulnerable to this temptation to pick and choose from God's word the verses that we like and ignore or twist the verses that we don't like so that they end up saying the opposite of what they, they're supposed to say. We, can, we might even be able to convince ourselves that God's word is ambiguous on the topics that we would like it to be ambiguous about. But of course, we cannot ever pull the wool 
over God's eyes. God knows our hearts. God knows our motives. And true faith desires instead to be shaped by God's word, not to turn around and shape God's word according to our own preferences. Now, the suggestion from Ahab's servants here to, to Micaiah, it's very revealing. It shows what their assumptions were about what a prophet is and what a prophet does. They assumed a prophet can make God say whatever he wants. They assumed that the prophet's message is subject to his own preferences and his own allegiances. And that is the case with false prophets, but it must never be the case of faithful prophets or pastors. And so Micaiah responds rightly, As the Lord lives... What the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. It's like what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He was told to be quiet and to stop speaking the word of God. And he said, if I say I will not mention him or will not speak in his name anymore, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up within my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot That is the heart of a faithful prophet or pastor. And pray, brothers and sisters, that that would always be the hearts of the leaders of this church and this federation as well. Well, in verse 15, Micaiah then comes before King Ahab, and the king asks him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And did you notice that the king's question changed ever so slightly from the way he worded it to his own prophets? In, in verse 6, when he was talking to his own, his own entourage, he, he simply asked them, Shall I go up to Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And his prophets knew the answer to that one. The way the question was worded already indicated the way it ought to be answered. Uh, They were supposed to affirm the king in whatever he wanted to do. But now in verse 15, he asks, shall we go up? And and he makes it plural, probably because he figures if he can include Jehoshaphat with himself, then maybe he can manipulate God's prophet into, into being in favor of this plan. Well, Micaiah's response is surprising. Instead of doing what he just said he would do, instead of speaking the word of God, he does exactly what the messenger told him to do. He imitates all the other prophets and he says, Go up and succeed, and the Lord, Yahweh, will give it into the hand of the king. If the king didn't want to hear God's word, and the messenger already made that clear enough, then God wasn't going to waste his words on the king either. Micaiah's response was a warning. If you don't want to hear God's word, then you won't hear it. And and Micaiah's words was also a test. Ahab knew that this wasn't actually the word of God. And the way he responded already proved it. He, he must have heard the sarcasm in Micaiah's voice because he exploded, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He knew what the truth was. And it, it almost sounds like this kind of thing must have happened before, which makes you wonder, how many other times did Ahab summon Micaiah half wanting to know the truth, but also 
the other half of him not wanting to know it, and every time again getting annoyed when Micaiah does go and tell the truth. He, he had whined earlier to Jehoshaphat, Micaiah never prophesies good concerning me, but only evil. And it makes you wonder, how many times did this happen? And why does the king keep summoning Micaiah? Well, it's reflective of human nature. And maybe you've seen this in a friend or a family member yourself. If you've, if you've ever counseled a, an unbelieving friend or, or family member um, maybe you've seen it yourself, that they, they can surround themselves with, with friends who affirm them and tell them that God doesn't want them to change and there's nothing wrong with the way they are and with the way that they're living. And yet, deep down, they themselves don't even believe it when they hear it from those friends and they don't even respect those friends. And, and in their more vulnerable moments, maybe they come to you as, as a believer wanting to know the word of God and arguing with you because they want you to agree with them and insisting still that you be honest with them. And yet when you are, you tell them what God's word teaches, they push it off and they call it judgmental. That's sinful human nature. And you see that here with Ahab as well. We can tell ourselves lies. We can surround ourselves with people that tell us the things that we want them to hear, even when we know better. But at the, in the end, we, we still want to know the truth and at the same time can't handle the truth. It reminds me of Christopher Hitchens, the, the great atheist uh, author and speaker. He was once asked if in, ima- in an imaginary situation where there was only one Christian left in the world, whether he would try to convert that last Christian to atheism as well. And to everyone's surprise, Hitchens said, no, he wouldn't. And, and he, didn't, he didn't know why. He admitted he wasn't sure why, but something in him still wanted there to be at least one Christian out there somewhere. And that's what you see in Ahab, too. He insists that Micaiah tell him the truth, even though he puts him in prison for it, and even though it annoys him to death, he doesn't want to get rid of that one last prophet of God because he knows then you have no more access to the truth. And so Ahab tells Micaiah, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then Micaiah does tell him the truth. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And notice, notice the accusation also. Obviously, there's a word of judgment there. But notice an accusation there as well. Not only is he implying that Ahab is going to die, but also that once Ahab is finally dead, then Israel can finally have peace. Well, Ahab, of course, predictably, loses his temper with Micaiah. It's almost like it's a routine thing with Micaiah. And he turns to Jehoshaphat and he says, See, didn't I tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil? Well, the tragic thing in all of this is that Ahab already knew the answer before he ever even summoned Micaiah. He didn't need a prophet to tell him what God thought of his mission. He already knew that he was deceiving himself and living in sin. He just didn't want to hear it. 
And so Micaiah then continues the message of the Lord with a second vision. And he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, another said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also to succeed. Go and do so. Now therefore, Micah says to the king, Behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. This passage is troubling for a lot of modern readers. Does this mean that God lies? That God sends out a lying spirit? Some people have tried to, to get around this by saying maybe God just gave permission for this spirit to go, but, but didn't actually send him. But that's not what the text says. He tells the spirit, go and do so. Go ahead and deceive him. And this shouldn't make us uncomfortable, at least not for that reason. This is entirely in keeping with who God is. Ahab can hardly accuse God of lying to him when God has just sent Micaiah to him to speak the truth. The problem is Ahab doesn't want the truth. So God, in his sovereignty, gave him over to his own unwillingness to listen and sent false prophets and liars to bring him down. At the end of the day, no one will be able to accuse God of lying to them or making his word unclear so that they couldn't come to a decision. If they were deceived, they were deceived by their own choice, by their own will. They wanted to be deceived. Creation, for for every person, creation is easily sufficient to testify to who God is. And for us Christians, he's also given us his word. And he's also given us fellow Christians to confront us and rebuke us when we fall into sin. If all of those things fail us, and if we still fall for preachers who tell us what we want to hear, or theologians who affirm the things that we want to read in God's word, and tell us that it means the opposite of what it says, or even scientists, who can, persuade, who can recite persuasive arguments and undermine God's word, or political leaders who will lie to our face, or friends who will tell us what we want to hear. If God sends those into our world, we can hardly accuse God of lying to us because we wanted to be deceived. We're deceived by our own choice. If God sends those people into the world, for, into our world, he does so because he's decreed disaster for those who would listen to those voices and fall for them. When someone repeatedly shows that they're not interested in hearing what God's word has to say, he does leave them with the lies that they would prefer to hear instead. That shouldn't shock us at all. It's not inconsistent with God's character at all. God never left Ahab without warning, and he has not left us without warning either. If we love something else, more than God and more than His Word, such that it makes us unwilling 
to listen to God's word. This is a serious warning for us. There comes a point where God gives unwilling, stubborn sinners over to the very thing they want when he allows them to believe the lies that they want to hear. And and notice the accusation in Micaiah's words as well. It's not just against Ahab, it's also directed against Zedekiah and all these false prophets who are standing right there. He says, Behold, the Lord put a deceiving spirit into the mouths of these your prophets. And Zedekiah, you can only imagine, would have especially felt the sting of that accusation. Maybe Micaiah was even looking right at him when he spoke those words. And so Zedekiah reacted in the way that it seems that false prophets always react. Just like the Sanhedrin did to Jesus and the high priest Ananias did to Paul. He comes up and slaps him on the mouth and he says, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to you? So he makes this claim, I'm just as much a prophet of the Lord as you are. I have the Spirit of the Lord just as much as you do. Who are you to say that you have the truth and I don't? Now Micaiah could have argued with him all day long. And it's already clear that that wouldn't have gotten him anywhere. Both were claiming that God was speaking through them. Both were claiming to have the Spirit of God. And so instead, Micaiah simply levels the playing field. Long ago, Moses had already instituted a test for true prophets and false prophets. In Deuteronomy 18, the prophet whose words come to pass is a false prophet. So Micaiah just submits himself and Zedekiah both to that test. Well, when Micaiah finished speaking, Ahab commanded the guards to put him in prison to feed him with bread and water until he returned in peace. And Micaiah says, rightly, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And as you read this, you can't help but wonder whether Micaiah ever got out of prison or whether he was just left there to rot. Like so many Christians around the world, though, also today, he made his choice to stand by the word of God, even though it would cost him his life. It's like the words of the Lord Jesus, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's certainly what Micaiah did. Better to die in prison than to face God after this life as a false witness. Well, what about Ahab? For his part, he's been warned now three times. We've seen this in the last few weeks. In 1 Kings 20, an unnamed prophet warned him because he spared Ben-Hadad when he should have killed him. In chapter 21, after he killed Naboth, Elijah warned him that God would demand his life from him. And now Micaiah gives him the final warning, and once again, he ignores it. Well, actually, he didn't ignore it entirely. Maybe you noticed this also. Micaiah's warning, even though he had dismissed him as a false prophet of God, Micaiah's warning still left an impression on Ahab's mind because he did end up changing his battle plan just a little. Instead of going in as he was going to go, he put enough stock in Micaiah's warning that he decided to disguise himself because Micaiah had warned him the king would die on the battlefield. So he decides to disguise himself and leave Jehoshaphat as the only visible king on the battlefield. There's a lesson there for for Jehoshaphat also, and for anyone who who allies themselves with an ungodly king. 
In the end, he was thrown under the bus. In the end, he was betrayed by Ahab. And it's sad he didn't have the insight to realize it beforehand. But there's no escaping God's sovereign plan. During the battle, an Aramean soldier at random draws his bow and shoots it into the enemy camp. And it strikes one soldier out of all of the soldiers and hits him in the one part of his body armor or of his body that was not covered by armor. And God's word spoken through Micaiah and through two other prophets is finally fulfilled. The most godless king that Israel ever had is finally dead. So verse 37 tells us, So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves. You'll notice in the reading I skipped the words in it because those words aren't there in the text. It just says the prostitutes washed themselves according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So it just, it just leaves that as a, a final thought in our minds. They washed his chariot by the pool of Samaria. The dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes bathed themselves. End of story. So you might ask, what's the point? Why does he leave this as the final thought in our mind? Why does it even mention these prostitutes? What do they have to do with Ahab's story? Well, the, pros- the author mentions these prostitutes because it's one of those jarring scenes that leaves an impression in your mind that words can't tell. The authors are, are trying to picture, as best as they can, the legacy that Ahab left. When he's gone, what do you find? Dogs licking up his blood and prostitutes bathing themselves and preparing themselves for another night's work. That is Ahab's legacy. It's a sad and tragic ending to his life. The final verses tell us that the the, the author admits there's a lot about Ahab's life that he didn't bother to mention. He had a mighty army. He had built impressive palaces of ivory. In fact, archaeologists have even found some of those palaces that Ahab built. And it's true, they really were impressive. But the text says none of that matters. If you want to know more about that, you can look that up in the historical archives. Because it doesn't matter for us. Ahab might have been a great king when it came to the economy or to the army. But his whole life, he let himself listen to lies that ultimately destroyed him. And if you want to see his real legacy, it's those dogs licking up his blood and the prostitutes getting them ready, getting themselves ready for the returning soldiers. In the end, it doesn't matter how popular or successful you are. At the end of the day, all of us are going to die, and the legacy we will leave is not going to be how popular or successful we were, but whether or not we were men and women of conviction who believed God's word even when it was being treated with contempt, who obeyed God's word even when we didn't feel like it, even when it came at personal cost? Are we men and women who feared God and worked to make a difference for God's kingdom when it seemed like everyone else had other things to do? Are we people who lifted up God's name in our homes when others had other things to do? 
God's primary interest isn't in palaces of ivory or multi-million dollar oceanside residences or fancy retirement portfolios. He gives us a responsibility to work for his kingdom, to lift his name on high, to promote his righteousness. And if we, if we shirk that responsibility to do something else with our life, then our lives become worthless. It's a tragic ending for Ahab and for this chapter in God's, in the history of God's people. He left the kingdom as spiritually dark as he found it, and even more so. Well, we see many, many endings like this in the book of Kings. The story just seems to get worse and worse. But the prophets who wrote Kings do hold out hope. Even in a dark time like this, when the king is dead, when prostitutes are getting themselves ready for another night's work, the the authors here are honest about the world that they lived in. There's no pretending, there's no use in pretending that all is well in the church. But they do still hold out hope because they know, and they keep reminding us of this, they know the promises God made to David that a king would be born to David's line that would answer these questions, that would make sense of the mess in Israel and would somehow, though it seemed impossible, would somehow lead God's people to righteousness. The gospel of Christ is a gospel for the entire nation and the entire world. Through the gospel of Christ, God does come with this message of judgment against sin that we see played out against Ahab. But through the gospel, there is also a message of redemption from sin and redemption from the lies that we tell ourselves and hope that we would someday become a righteous people. The darkness that you find at the end of this chapter is not the end of the story of God's people. Christ took that darkness on himself, and we see it in the hours that he hung there on the cross. And when he rose, the reign of that darkness is over. We live now in a very, very different age. Ahab is not the king in our world. Christ is the king. And Christ is building a kingdom of righteousness with his church, us, his redeemed people, right at the center of that kingdom. And that's, that's our role in this story. We have the privilege of being the front lines of God's kingdom and bringing that kingdom forward. We're not only reigning with Christ in righteousness, as we confess, but also each of us in our own domains, in our own homes, our own businesses, whatever jurisdictions God gives us, each of us also are carrying God's kingdom forward. We are also Prophets, but not prophets with empty words like the prophets of Ahab, but with the same spirit as Micaiah had, also living within us. And our hearts, to use the the, the phrase from Jeremiah, our hearts burning, as it were, with the word of God within us. And it isn't just here in this church either. Because of Christ, the name of God and the truth of God is confronting all the lies that have kept the world in darkness up till this day. 
God's righteousness is taking shape in many, many homes and businesses and communities and countries, no matter how many people continue to tell themselves lies. No matter how many people follow the spirit of Ahab and reject the truth of God, the kingdom of God will continue moving forward. This is not a chapter that ends in darkness like 1 Kings 22. Christ's church and Christ's kingdom in our age is breaking through that darkness. The gates of Hades, as he said, will not overcome his church. And so let us then worship him in truth, as, as the Lord said, in spirit and truth. And then let us cast aside and put away any lies that we might have told ourselves about, about what Scripture teaches us. And let us also repent if there's repenting that needs to happen and humble ourselves before God's Word so that we would not be given over to the lies that we tell ourselves. Because after all, the message of God's Word, the message of the Gospel, is a message of hope, of life, of joy for each one of us and for the entire world. Amen.